Welcome to Celebration Church. Good to have you with us, uh, everybody here, as well as our campuses in Appleton and Stevens Point, and those who watch all over the world on the internet tonight is our final Wednesday night Bible study for this first part of the year. We uh, will be taking a break now and picking it up again in September. So why do you do that? Because the weather finally gets nice here in Green Bay, and nobody wants to be in church, particularly me. <laughs> So we take off for a few months during the summer, enjoy the wonderful weather, and then back at it. We are continuing our study. We are in the uh, book of Hebrews, a letter written to Jewish Christians. Um, it wasn't too terribly much longer after this was written that uh, there became less and less Jewish Christian congregations that began to become predominantly Gentiles who were Christians and the Jews pulled away. But during this time, there's still a, a significant amount of Jewish believers. Now, <clears throat> this book uh, really gets into some heavy theological weeds, if you will, as the writer, and nobody knows who it is, uh, is writing to these Jewish Christians and encouraging them in their faith, using a lot, a ton of Old Testament references and Jewish references uh, some, all stuff that would be very familiar to them. Hebrews is a little difficult for us to read because it's just not that familiar to us. We don't know all these things as well as they did. But we'll point them out. We're going to pick it up at chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, and what he's talking about is uh, he just mentioned the uh, uh, children of Israel that were in the desert, and they were so stubborn and so rebellious that God finally had it up to here and said, okay, none of y'all are getting into the promised land. We're going to wait you out until y'all die off and then your children will go in instead of you. So he says, the promise of the entering his rest still stands, but let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it, because that was the analogy he just used about these people would come out of Egypt, saw miracles you and I would beg to see, incredible demonstrations of God's power and care and watching over us, and it meant nothing to them. It just didn't change them. Uh, and he explains why in, in a second here. Uh, For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. Different good news, but it's still good news nonetheless. The good news to the Egyptians is, hey, you're free. The good news to us is, hey, you're free. <laughs> but not from being slaves of Egypt, but from being f slaves to sin and hatred and all the other nasty stuff that uh, people get caught up into. So we now are free. It's been proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them. Why, 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 why? Because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. It wasn't mixed with faith, I believe another translation says. Uh, all these stuffs, all these things happen, all these stuffs. <laughs> I'm an educated man, all this stuff. Uh, happened to them, but it wasn't mixed with faith. Um, and again, oftentimes people will ask me, man, why doesn't God do big, cool, mind-blowing things like that? 
all the time. Because without faith, it doesn't mean jack to people. It just doesn't. One of Jesus' greatest miracles, and not his greatest miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead, you thought at this point, wow, everybody believes. But they didn't. In fact, after seeing it, the Pharisees got together and said, we have to kill him. And very, another week or so later, that's exactly what they did. They crucified him because they saw all these great miracles. They did the exact opposite. Very stubborn people. Because that's what happens when you don't mix stuff with faith. Faith is much more powerful. Better to see stuff here than to see stuff here. Okay? You see stuff here, it won't change you. When you see stuff here, it changes you. And interestingly enough, if you will see it here first, you will eventually see it here. It's called answers to prayer. Jesus said, believe when you pray that you have already received it. What do you mean you've already received it? He says, believe you've already received it and you will have it. What is he talking about? He says, you've got to see it here first. When it becomes real here, then you get to see it here. But if you don't believe it here, you're not going to see it here. And seeing it here first won't mean jack squat to you. It is what it is. So now we who have believed enter that rest. Now he's talking about this rest, this Sabbath rest that he's talking about. Just as God said, and, and then he quotes from Psalm 9511, and if you turn into Psalm 9511, you'll see that uh, it's uh, exactly this. He's talking in the context of those stubborn people in the wilderness who would not believe. And then he says, so I declared on oath in my anger. In other words, God said, I swore. They shall never enter my rest. Now, what's really interesting about this is um, when we read what happens in Exodus, he doesn't say that. He says they just won't get into the promised land. And to be honest with you, if I was reading the Psalms uh, based on the experience of what I know from the scriptures, when he says that he swore they will not enter his rest, I would have said, well, if you put it in context, he's talking about not entering the promised land. What this guy is trying to make the point of, and again, we don't know who he is. He's trying to say that God said something different here. This is different that we hadn't heard before. He didn't say he wouldn't enter in the promised land. He said he won't enter his rest. And he starts to make an argument about what that means. All right? And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. So what's he talking about? For somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day, in these words, and he said somewhere, because if he was us today, he would say, because it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse whatever, you know what I'm saying? Uh, they didn't have the chapters and stuff, so he says, it says somewhere, <laughs> and then he quotes it uh, verbatim. Uh, he definitely knew his Bible, the Old Testament in particular. What did it say? On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, it says, they shall never enter my rest. All right. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David as the, in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So he goes on and says, well, you know, if you're a Jewish person, if I'm a Jewish person listening to this, I go, no, 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 he's, he's talking about not going into the promised land. Because they eventually went into the promised land. Just those guys didn't go. And he says, no, but for if Joshua had given them rest, because Joshua was the one who took them in, they took the promised land in quite glorious fashion, I might add, as we'll be looking at in our series on Sunday mornings on the uh, significant events of the Old Testament. He goes in and uh, 
does some serious butt kicking. But he, so they would assume that that's what Joshua did. He says, no, no, if Joshua had given the rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then, his argument, is that there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience, which is what those guys did back then. So he's basically saying, look, there is a special Sabbath rest uh, that God has. And when we come to faith in Christ is when we enter that rest. Uh, it's a... Uh, <clears throat> Just another argument here of why Christians were less and less uh, relying on the Sabbath. And of course, we don't have the Sabbath. We eventually changed it to Saturday, a Sunday. And then in typical Christian fashion, <laughs> churches have done this for thousands of years, try to take stuff from the Old Testament and try to make it apply to the New Testament. So they tried to say Sunday was Sabbath and people were forbidden to work on, on Sunday, but that's not what it said. It was for Saturday, and, uh, and we don't live under the Old Testament rules anymore. We live under the law of grace, which is a whole different creature. So let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest, that, that rest, that rest of God. Help us to get into that place where we can fall into the arms of God and rest. Now, he says, make every effort to do that. Why? Because it's easy not to get into that rest. Um, you know, today... Oh, but you like my pink shirt? Isn't that cool? Woohoo! I got the attention span of a fly. Anyway, uh, today was kind of a stressful day for me, just dealing with crazy nonsense. And uh, it's easy to pop out of that rest where you're not really resting in God. You get all stressed out in your own emotions, your own everything. Like, well, what are we called to do as Christians? We're called to make every effort to enter God's rest. We should be in a continual state of rest. We really should. Uh, hard to do. That's why you have to make every effort. <laughs> and I must confess, I do not always make every effort. Uh, I like to kick butt and take names and then apologize later. But uh, <clears throat> we all have issues, right? Apparently <laughs> that's one of mine. But uh, we need to be in that place of rest as believers where literally we're just walking in the peace of the Holy Spirit. And things don't freak the snot out of us. And so, again, easier said than done, but that's nonetheless our challenge. That's our call as believers to enter God's rest, to walk into that Sabbath rest. For the word of God is alive and active. Now, this is one of the most famous verses in the New Testament that we're about to read, quoted many, 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 many times by pastors and books and everything else over and over again. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Knows it'll cut right through you and judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Why is this a famous verse, Hebrews 4.12? Because it talks about the power of God's word. It's why we preach God's word. It's why we teach God's word. Why? Because it is powerful. It's alive and active. And it's more effective than any sword, two-edged sword. And it can cut right through you. Uh, and that's the point of preaching God's word, to let it cut through us. And I don't know if you've, I'm sure all of you have had experiences where you're listening to a sermon and at different points God does different things for different people and all of a sudden something comes alive and it just kind of cuts right through you. You know, and you go, ugh, ugh. You know, so many times I've heard people say, oh man, did I need to hear that? Oh, I really needed to hear that today. 
What was it? That's the word of God doing its thing. I don't know what you're going through. I have no idea. People say sometimes I have their homes bugged. <clears throat> and then I, on Sunday, preach about what they were doing. No, I don't have your homes bugged. I don't know what you're doing. But God does. And that's the point. And by proclaiming God's word and teaching God's words, it allows it to cut through us and get to the core of here, to our hearts, right? It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And God will often call us on the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. He's not asleep. He knows exactly what's going on. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, this is his reference he talked earlier in this book letter that whoever wrote it sent to the church at that time, Jewish churches, kept referring to Jesus as the high priest. It's terminology we just wouldn't use. We don't think in those terms. But in the Old Testament, the high priest was the one who would go in and make sacrifices for the people and atonement for their sins and make things right between the people and God. Well, Jesus, the reference he's using over and over again, Paul didn't make these references very often because he was writing to Gentiles. But to these guys, Jesus is our high priest. They all went, oh, yeah, I get it. He's the one who makes everything right for us, okay? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess, profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, uh, which is what they experienced, you know, this, whoever was this high priest that was going into the tabernacle, holy of holies, making these things, you know, people, he didn't know what you're going through. You know, he might have been a hoity-toity guy, <laughs> you know, above the fray of it all. He says, that's not the kind of high priest we have. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Everything you struggle with, everything you've been tempted by, believe it or not, Jesus, that was thrown in front of his face. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. I don't like this translation a lot of times, but uh, some of the other translations use the word boldness. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace. That's what the King James Bible says. Uh, and I like that attitude where you can come in boldly. You don't have to come in timidly. Um, it's like, you know, if I came into your house, I probably wouldn't just walk up and open the refrigerator. All right? Because I'm not really part of your family. It's not my house. But whenever we went to our parents' house, that's the first thing we did. <laughs> we didn't ask permission for nothing, man. We didn't want to do do Hey, look what's here. You know, we just take it. Why? It's home to us. We could approach boldly. We didn't have to be fearful and stuff. My dad was a doctor and I loved it whenever we had to go see dad because you would have all the people waiting in the waiting room for hours to see pops. But when I walked in, I went right to the front of the line. Woohoo! Why? I am the son, you see. The son gets treated differently. Boldness. I just walk into that place. Hey, y'all. <laughs> And walk right up to the front, and dad would just light up and, what's wrong? You know, that's the kind of relationship we have with Jesus. So he encourages us to be bold about our faith and approaching God um, so that 
we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The problem is we do exactly the opposite. When we mess up, when we fall short, the last thing most people do is go running boldly to Jesus. We tend to do what Adam did. Do you remember what Adam did as soon as he sinned? He went, he went and hid. He was hiding from God. And God comes through the garden and says, Adam, Adam, where are you? Now, I got a pretty good clue. God knew exactly where he was, being God and all. <laughs> but nonetheless, he yells, Adam, where are you at? He says, I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? Did you eat of that tree that I told you not to? And of course, he had. Adam says, well, it's not my fault. It's that woman you gave me. <laughs> and then the woman says, not my fault. It's that serpent. Right? People have been passing the buck ever since. It ain't my fault. It's everybody else's fault. And, uh, and he goes hiding from God. And the problem is, most of the time, if we sin, especially if you do something really stupid and really bad, most people's first inclination is not to come boldly to the throne of grace. It's to hide. There are people, and I talk to them, you know, they don't come to church anymore. Why? Oh, I'm, uh, you know, I've really been struggling. Well, come to church. Well, I, you know, I, I got arrested for DWI or, or this, that, or I did something. Well, come to church. Don't hide from God. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? So that we can receive mercy. Well, God won't understand. No, he just said. He'll understand. He was faced with every temptation you've been faced with. Right? So that's his point. So because of that, what he's saying is there's a God in heaven who truly, seriously, who actually knows the temptation you face. Well, he didn't do it. No, I know. He didn't do it. We're the ones who do it. <laughs> but he understands the temptation and the pull and all of that stuff. So he's there waiting to receive us. Um, it's like the story of the prodigal child. You remember that story, right? This son uh, goes to his dad and says, hey, dad, I want to cash in my 401k. And he takes all his money, and he goes partying. The Bible says he spent it on wild living, wild women, all this stuff. And I'm sure he had tons of friends when he did it. Nobody has more friends than the guy buying all the drinks at the bar. Everybody loves him, right? But then the money runs out, and now nobody is his friend. And he struggles to make a living, and he winds up working feeding hogs. And the Bible says he was so hungry himself that he began to envy the slop he was giving to the pigs. That's a bad day. And he comes to his senses. He says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go back to dad's. But not boldly, not looking at the throne of grace. He said, you know, he rehearses this little speech. He says, you know, I'll go back and I'll say, look, dad, I know I'm not your son anymore and I'm not worthy to be your son. I'm not asking to be your son. Can I just have a job? I, he was desperate. I, I just need a job. I, I know I blew it. I know I made a mistake. And he's rehearsing this because he's probably expecting to be rejected. Right? See, that's what we're expecting. God is so mad at us. God is so disappointed in us. God is so disgusted by us that he can't wait to tell us to stuff it. So he goes back to his dad, expecting entirely to be rejected and having his argument, look, all I want is a job. Can you just 
just give me a job. And Jesus said in his parable, while the son was still a far way off, his dad saw him, recognized him, and he went running to him, threw his arms around him, gave him a big hug, and then he starts to give the speech he rehearsed. <laughs> oh, listen, dad, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but he interrupts him. He says, guys, come here. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate. Kill the fatted calf, which is really bad news if you're the fatted calf. But so they kill the fatted calf and they have a big barbecue and they celebrate and the kid is blown away. This is not, this is not the reception he had expected. And same with us, right? When you really blow it, when you're really struggling, it's easy to think that God is ticked off, that he's mad at you, that he's angry at you, and you want to go hide. But it's always the wrong direction. Run to him, come to him. As soon as he sees you come in his direction, he'll go running towards you, throw his arms around you. That's the kind of God that we serve. Pretty cool, huh? So that's why he says, therefore, let us approach God's throne of grace with boldness, confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And uh, I don't see a whole lot of young people. I see some young people here. You know, I might talk about this a little bit on Sunday, if I remember, which is highly unlikely. But anyway, uh, you know, we, we have these graduations and we send our young people out into the world. And uh, you've heard me say this before at graduation time. I hope I remember to do this. Uh, but, uh, you know, just this, we, say, we always say to the kids, look, we have taught you how to do this. We've taught you how to live life. But if you mess up, if you fall, if you are like Humpty Dumpty that hits the ground and breaks into a million pieces, always remember you can come home here. You can always come home here. It doesn't matter what you did, who you did it to or who you did it with. You can always come home here and we will be like all the king's horses <laughs> and all the king's men and stick you back together again. You might look a little cracked, but that's okay. You know, don't think I can't go home. My pastor will be disappointed in me. My parents will be disappointed in me. Everybody will be disappointed in me. I didn't do what I should have done. Never feel that way. We share with you the right thing to do so that you can be blessed and succeed. But if the worst happens, don't think you can't come home. You can always come home here. There's always a place for you here. So then he goes on, he says, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what the high priest does. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when he's called by God, just as Aaron was, the high priest called by God to do his job. But he says, in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you're my son. Today I've become your father. And it's hard to get our, you know, it's just the best, I don't think, our comprehension of what actually happened when God came to earth really makes sense to us. It's hard to get our heads around it. It's like trying to explain the weather to an ant. You know, he's not going to get it. So the closest analogy we have is the sun and, and that kind of thing. 
the Father. He says another place, you are a priest forever in the order of, in the order of Melchizedek. How many of you are all excited about Melchizedek? Nobody, that's right, okay, because we have no puking idea what he's talking about. All right, well, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll explain who this guy is. Well, during the day of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Who is he? We'll get to it. We have much to say about all this. Okay. <laughs> but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. And he basically starts to chew these people out. Again, we don't know who he is. We're not really sure the exact people he's writing to. Clearly, they're Jewish Christians. But he starts to take out the paddle and whip their butts. He says, you know, I have a lot to say about all this. Melchizedek. Well, we don't even know what he's talking about, but they did. He says, well, you guys are, you're not, you're not getting it. You're just not getting fact. Though by this time you ought to be teachers. Now, this does apply to us. By this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truth of God's word all over again. He says, come on, you guys. You've been in this long enough. You ought to be able to lead a class. You ought to be able to get it. But what were they failing to do? Grow in their faith. They weren't growing in their faith. They just sat there and never really grew, which is not good. He says, you need milk, not solid food. You bunch of babies. No one who lives on milk, still being an infant, uh, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. They do it by working it out and living it out. Chapter 6, again, remember there were no chapters. He just considers, continues writing, therefore... And whenever there's a therefore, you want to look what it's there for. And uh, he's talking about these guys who are still babies and they weren't growing up. He said, you guys have been Christians long enough, you ought to be able to start teaching people. He says, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. And then he starts laying some of these elementary doctrines. He says, we shouldn't have to teach at this point. Now here's the irony of what I'm about to go through. Many of these things are still relevant to us. Uh, we have a fairly young church and a fairly fast-growing church. And there's a lot of people who come who are very new in their faith and don't know much about anything which he's about to say we should already know about. So he's about to say, man, we got to move past this stuff and move on. Well, for people who've been Christians for a long time and really understood that, uh, so it won't really apply to a whole lot of us here, so he said, this is what we shouldn't be doing. We shouldn't be laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. What do I have to teach on? The idea of repentance from acts that lead to death. Okay? Because we're still, you know, we got a lot of young people here, young in their faith. What's he talking about? 
there are things you can do that will lead to spiritual death. And he threatens this again. A lot of what we've been reading lately has had threats like this, which again ticks off all our Calvinistic people. <laughs> That's okay, peace, all right? And they think, oh no, you can never, once you're born again, you can never, really? He says, repentance from acts that lead to death. There's stuff, you stay in it long enough. You can end up in a bad place. Exactly what I believe, exactly what he's saying. If you disagree with me, so what, get in line. All right. So what does it mean? It just means we're not going to get blessed. Really? That's the nicest thing you can say. And I often just use that approach with people. But the seriousness of this, you know, you stay in some bad stuff long enough, you are going to be in some bad doo-doo. I wanted to say something else, but I didn't say it. And, yeah, scuba. <laughs> and a faith in God. Really? What do we got to teach about how to have faith in God? Instruction about cleansing rites. Well, of course, he's talking from a Jewish perspective. We don't get into that at all uh, because we're not Jews. There were all kinds of cleansing rituals and stuff in the Old Testament they had to do. And not laying on of, about the laying on of hands, what do we got to do? We got to teach about the importance of laying on of hands when you pray for people. In fact, I could go into, and I might come back and just go through all of these and do a teaching on all of them. Just to kind of, so he's talking about stuff that really a lot of us don't need to understand. That's what I'm saying. But he's writing to people who've been around this for a long time now. They've all heard this stuff. They should know it by now, and they're not growing in their faith. All right? And about the resurrection of the dead. What's one thing people don't understand? The resurrection of the dead. Got to talk about that. And of eternal judgment. All the questions like that. What does that happen? What does that mean? What happens on judgment day? And I shall also revisit that. We will certainly visit that when we get to the book of Revelation because that's when they speak of eternal judgment. And God permitting, we shall do so. Do what? Leave all this behind and go on to heavier stuff. But he's still saying, I can't really get as deep as I want with you because you're just not that mature. Personally, I'm kind of glad because I have a hard time keeping up with what he's talking about as it is. All right? Now, it's impossible. Check this one out. This is one of those hot verses that sends some people flying and really confuses some people. So please listen to me on this one. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened. Well, maybe they weren't enlightened in the first place. Actually, it says they were once enlightened who have tasted of the heavenly gift. Well, they were probably never born again in the first place. Uh, kind of says that they were. And who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Well, they didn't really have the Spirit of God. See, that's what they'll say. People argue about this. Not all. Anyone who was a Christian and starts doing really bad, they just probably were never Christians in the first place. That's uh, not what he's saying. It's impossible. These people who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away, once you've fallen away, it's impossible to be brought back to repentance. Now, what does that mean? Now, this is one of these verses the devil likes to throw on people and makes them think that God hates you now. That once you've sinned, too late, you can't be repentant, and that's not what he's saying. Uh, he's not talking about people who struggle with sin and make mistakes and fall. Some people have fallen away. These were people at this point, they were getting to the point where they were denying Christ straight up. And under great duress, they were threatening to kill them. This is the beginning. Remember, they were writing about all the persecutions and stuff they were having in 1 Peter. Now he's in 2 Peter. It's getting heavy. And there's people who are totally falling away from the faith. They don't want anything to do with it. Totally turn their back on God. You say, well, that's not possible. Apparently it is. 
And he says, those who really go through this, and if you're here, you're not there because the people like this don't come here. Do you understand what I'm saying? So don't, don't ever think, oh, gee, I'm one of these people. I've fallen away once and um, I'm doomed. You're not doomed. See, there's two extremes of this. There's the extreme that says you can do anything once you're saved and you can't go to hell. And there's people who say that you go to hell if you sneeze wrong. They're both extremes, okay? Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot harder to get into the place we're talking about here than one would think. God is very patient. You doubt me, read the Old Testament. Look at how long he put up with these people in the, in the, in the wilderness before he finally had it with them. Read the book of Kings. Oh my goodness. Remember when we did the book of Kings? I don't know how many of you guys remember that. We're reading it and they're so wicked and God says, if you don't stop it, I'm going to smack you. And then you read the next one and they're wicked and I'm going to smack you. And the next one, you better stop or I'm going to smack you. It goes on and on and on for generations. I'm thinking, kill them already. Let's move on. You know, these are people who, they were insulting God and worshiping other idols and I mean, it was bad. You think it's easy to lose your salvation. You are wrong. You are absolutely wrong. God is incredibly patient. That's what we read about Moses, remember? God, when they were dancing around the cow, worshiping the cow, God said, oh, I've had it. Let me kill all these people. He said, Lord, forgive them. And he goes, okay. I mean, it's great. You read how easy, and it talks about he is quick to forgive. He is quick. In fact, when we get to, to uh, uh, what's his name, got swallowed by the fish? Jonah. I was going to say Noah. <laughs> Wrong boat. All right. Uh, Jonah. Do you know the reason that it says he was running from God? The reason he was running from God is God told him to go tell these people to repent, and he didn't want to tell them to repent. Because he knew that the prophets, we'll get into it when we get there, they had prophesied that this nation would come and destroy Israel. It would be like, <laughs> to use a stupid analogy, which I'm very good at, it would be as a serious uh, Packer fan, someone says, go tell the Chicago Bears the game plan so they can win. I ain't doing that, you know what I'm saying? Because I know the Bears are going to try and beat us, and I don't want to beat you. Know, if they know the game plan, they'll win. So the reason Jonah ran is he didn't want to go preach. Because he, because, and he gets mad at the end, because God forgives them all. And they stayed a healthy nation, and then they eventually came and judged Israel. And he was so mad at God. He says, I'm, I'm mad, I'm ticked off because you're so, you forgive too easy. I don't want to go preach to them, because I know if I preach to them, they'll say they're sorry, and you're going to let them off the hook. This is the God that we serve. He's not, this idea that you can lose your salvation easily is nonsense. However, don't take this argument that it's impossible to get to a place where you lose out because we've been reading nothing but those kinds of warnings. All right? Again, greater men than I have had different opinions. Some of my best friends totally disagree with me on this. So, I don't know. I don't care. Anyway, going on. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. These are people who are denying Christ. I mean, this is bad. Whatever he's describing here is bad. These are the people. They go this far. They get to this point. They're toast. And they once tasted of the heavenly gift, been enlightened, and shared in the Holy Spirit. All right? But that's an extreme place to get. All right, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, 
and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessings of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed and in the end will be burned. The warning is, be the former, not the latter. All right? Don't be just all thorny and nasty. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown to him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Boy, those things are constantly tied together in the New Testament. Faith and patience. I like the faith. Not real crazy about the patience. It's like, come on, how long is this going on? You know, we've all been through trials, right, that seem like they would never end, but they always end. They always end. No matter how awful your day was, it's going to come to an end. Okay, whatever trial you're looking at, whatever frustration you're facing, whatever ickiness, I know God is going to turn it around, even with the stuff I was dealing with today. It's frustrated and it's mad and I want to go strangle somebody's always. I know in the end this is going to get straightened out. It's going to get fixed because that's what he does. He always does that. All right? All right. Then he goes on now. He says, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. In other words, God couldn't swear by somebody greater. The point being, if you're Abraham, you know, I, I, I swear to God that such a, which, by the way, you're not supposed to do anymore. That's a whole other teaching. But back then, Old Testament, they would make these vows and swearing. He says, Abraham could swear. But when God swore, he, he can't swear by anything greater than himself because he's the top. So he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. So after waiting patiently, this word that I don't like, Abraham received what was promised. Man, what was he, 100 years old? All those years, God told me he'd be the father of a son through Sarah. Uh, <laughs> seriously, 100 years. Now, clearly they lived longer, although not that much longer. I think we'd live to a, I don't know, just shy of 200 years. I can't remember right offhand. I know that he got married again after Sarah died at about 110 or something, whatever. So apparently he was still a little spunky. But still, that is a long time to wait. But yet he has the son, and through him comes this entire nation. So anyway, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an argument to end, an end to all argument. That doesn't really make even sense to us today. There used to be a culture. Um, <laughs> do I go there? Mark, do you want to go there? Of course you do. Okay, so, so I, I read this book recently called Holy S-H. You know, you get it. That's the book. Holy Ch. That's what, that was the name of the book. And uh, what was fat, the, the book was subtitled The History of Cursing. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just say it. Shit, it was shit. Holy shit. That's what he said. Okay. We're big boys and girls. All right. So he says, so, the argument of the whole book, he says, 
for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, nobody cared about the shit. You could say any of those words. It didn't mean anything to anybody. Nobody cared. What they cared about was the holy. Do not use God's name in vain. You use God's name in vain, man, all fire and brimstone will come down on you. And people were literally scared to death to use God's name in vain. And that's when, when they would start having people on trial, they would make them to swear to tell the truth. Whoops, head wrong hand. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. This is what that tradition comes from. Because once they swore, they would cough it up. They feared God that much. It's a fascinating book, the, the, the documentation and the history. Look it up. If you want to, it's really, there's a part of it that gets really difficult because it's talking about Latin words and you want to poke your eyeballs out with a stick after a while. But once you get past that, it's really rather fascinating and an interesting book. But nobody cared about that stuff. Everything was about the holy. And people would so fear God that once they swore to God, they would tell the truth, even to their own detriment. Once they made them swear, they would start telling you everything that they refused to tell you before. It was really rather fascinating. It's a really interesting book. Well, then it kept coming on and on. And then you know how you watch you know, like King Arthur movies and stuff like that. They would swear allegiance to the king. I swear allegiance to you, Arthur. You know, king. Ta-da! And once they swore allegiance, they were stuck. Because once you swore, you didn't go back on it. Well, the book did, uh, uh, chronicles how they kept, the more they do this, they started finding loopholes <laughs> around it to where more and more it just didn't have much strength at all anymore. And to this day, people routinely lie through their teeth after they I swear to deal the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Yep, sure. And then they lie and lie and lie. A lot of them are politicians, those little snots. And they, there's no fear of God, these little turds. None. You know. And then it says, what well, was interesting is if nobody cared about words like shit and that kind of thing, which, by the way, the Bible says you cannot take the word of the name of poop in vain. Okay, so it's, you think it's cursing. It's not cursing. It might be a little crude, but it's not cursing. All right, then it says then people became obsessed by those kinds of words. And you would be shocked at the common words that were used to describe body parts back then. They are the crudest, filthiest words you can imagine. So they decided, oh no, we, we, we need to start using Latin words to describe body parts. You know? So they started using Latin words like, like vagina. It's a, Latin, it's a Latin word. And nobody knew what the words meant, so it wasn't. What is funny in the book is she proves beyond any doubt that vagina was the filthiest word you could use in Latin to describe a woman's body part. It was the crudest, filthiest word. Because a vagina was what was the sheath that men stuck their swords in, which at one time, all men had vaginas. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so that was, that was very crude. That was a very, and when they would use that, hey, she's got a vagina. I mean, that was filthy, 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 filthy. But several hundred years later, that was the proper term. And to this day, we still use words that were actually curse words and filthy words in Latin, but because they're Latin and everyone's ignorant of Latin, it seems very holy, and we use those words. We don't use the common words anymore. That's all a bunch of nonsense. And it was a fascinating, fascinating book. Okay, where was I? So, what he says, da -da 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 -da. people swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts to end all arguments. Once you swear, oh man, now you're getting to it. Well, yeah, then, and for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, 
maybe even into you know, turn of the 1900s, but today that's all shot to snot. People have no fear of God. They swear all the time. Oh, I swear to God, which you're not supposed to be saying and doing, by the way. Uh, anyway, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. In other words, all the promises God is basically saying, by my own name, I promise you. I will keep my promises to you. Okay? So God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. What? <laughs> okay, again, Jewish culture, Jewish, they had the uh, uh, temple and there's the court of the Gentiles where all of us could show up. But then the next court, if you weren't Jewish, you couldn't go in there. You weren't allowed to go in there. And then they finally had, he had these intercourse, and finally got to the Holy of Holies behind this curtain, and only the high priest could go in there. It was, you know, a big stinking deal. So we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Really? We can do that now? That's this point, is we now have access to God. The curtain, and you remember when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that the curtain of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Why? He's not hiding behind a curtain anymore. Now we all have access to God because of the blood of Christ. He who took upon himself the sins of the world. To a God who is very anxious to forgive people. To the point that it ticks some people off. Isn't that interesting? In fact, going back to the parable of the uh, 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 <laughs> prodigal son. Remember, he forgives him, and you know who's mad? The older brother. I was faithful. I, why are you forgiving that jerk? You shouldn't let him in. And he says, no, 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 you got the wrong attitude. See, it ticked off the older son that the pop was so willing to let the younger son off. I mean, that's what it is, right? Uh, the religious people of Jesus' day, and don't kid yourself, there's, we, some of us still carry some of that religious nonsense on us. We're quick to condemn other people who make mistakes and fall and sin and act like we're so holy and we'd never do that kind of thing. That's why I always tell you, yeah, you would. Just ask God to keep you away from stuff like that. The minute you think you wouldn't do it is exactly when you do it. You get the right circumstances. Anybody in here is capable of anything. That's why we pray keep us from temp right? But uh, what ticked off the religious people is Jesus would let people off the hook. And he just ticked them off. The woman caught in adultery, you remember this one, right? She's caught in the act. That's got to be embarrassing. And by the way, where's the guy? You can't get caught in the act without the other guy. They let him off. Bunch of, bunch of jerks. It's probably one of their buddies. Hey, Sam, you better get out of here. Your wife's going to find out. <laughs> but they grab the girl. Bring her to Jesus. Jesus, it's, Moses said we should stone such a woman. That's when he said, he didn't contradict what Moses said. He just said, well, whoever hears without sin, you'd be the first one to throw a stone. And they all walked away, starting from the oldest to the youngest, which is fascinating thing. The older you get, 
The reality is, the more you realize your own frailties, right? Young people, they think they'll live forever. I never did anything wrong. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, you do. So uh, from the oldest to the youngest, this woman is sitting there trembling, tears undoubtedly streaming down her face, looking at death itself. And I don't know if she's even hearing what Jesus is saying. I mean, how many, well, I'd be listening, not, not in that situation, you wouldn't be, all you'd be thinking is, I'm gonna die, and what have I done? And this horrible thing, and I've humiliated myself and my family. She undoubtedly had a family. Stop and think of the repercussions of such a thing, which is one of the reasons you shouldn't do such things, because these types of things, like adultery, have huge repercussions. It's just not about you. It damages your children, it damages your spouse, it damages extended family. This stuff is nasty stuff. Man, don't be going down that rat hole. It is a horrible place to go. All of this undoubtedly has to be rushing through her mind. Who knows if she was even paying attention to what Jesus said. And then finally, Jesus asks to say, woman, where are your accusers? She says, they're not here. And then he says this, I don't, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. Now stop thinking about this. It shows you how anxious God is to forgive people. She never asked for forgiveness. Now I think you need to ask. I really do. But it certainly shows God's eagerness to let people off. Right? She didn't even have to ask. It's okay. It's okay. Go. Just go and stop and stop doing this stuff. And she got him around. He probably had no idea what was even going on. He's so eager to forgive that it would literally tick off people in the Bible. Like Jonah. Like the older brother in the story. People would get mad at God. I know you. You're, you're, you're going to forgive them. <laughs> yeah, that's what he does. He does. I get it. You got to confront bad behavior. You do. All evil needs to triumph is for good people to do nothing. If you doubt that, look at World War II. Everybody sat on their hands. All the nations of the world, oh, let's not get involved. Let's not get involved. Let's not get involved. Turned in the worst conflict the world has ever seen. A hundred million people killed. Your head can't even grab At some point, there's a number that is so high you can't think anymore. If I said, man, a thousand people killed, oh, that's horrifying. If 5,000, oh, that's terrible. A hundred million, you go, oh. You can't even comprehend it. A hundred million. That yeah, shows how far we've come as a nation, right? Remember people were screaming bloody murder after being in Iraq or whatever, after a thousand people had died, a thousand soldiers, it was the end of the world. In World War II, 6,000 men would die in a day. In a day. World War I, 40,000 men would die in a day. Unfreaking believable. And the next day, they'd go at it again. You got to hand it to these guys. These guys had courage, man. Uh, <laughs> I'd be running the other direction. Of course, then they'd shoot you that way. And you knew you were doomed either way. Either run or they're going to shoot you for desertion. Then you humiliate your family or just go to your death. They all knew they're going to their deaths. Horrible. That was, man, that war. I've studied that war. read history books about it. It's the most frustrating war I've ever read. Bunch of idiots. 
But 100 million people were killed. The vast majority, the vast majority were civilians. We're not counting people that were wounded, displaced, traumatized, homeless, destitute of everything they own, lost everything. That's not in the 100 million. That's 100 million dead people. That's because the world sat on its hands and wouldn't do anything. Um, all you need for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. So I thank God for those who serve. We're going to be acknowledging them this Sunday, right? This Memorial Day weekend. Who serve, uh, from our police officers all the way to the military, whatever. These are men who put themselves, and women, who put themselves in the line of danger to protect others. Uh, but you've got to stop. You've got to stand up against it. That's why we're not overly pacifistic in this church. Uh, if somebody comes, you know, I, you read about these people coming into churches and shooting people, I promise you, someone comes into this church and starts shooting anybody, you better duck. Because it's like 150 women around here who've got guns in their purses. <laughs> not to mention the men, not to mention the security, not to mention the pastor, you know. The bad news for me is I'm probably the first one he'll aim at, you know. And so I pray he's a bad shot. Oh, God, we pray he doesn't come at all. You know, but why would you do that? Because we're not going to allow that. We're not going to allow it. You know, just sit back and let him take. I hear, I hate these stories. You read, you know, he stopped and reloaded and started shooting more people. Stop and reloaded. I don't think nobody has a gun. I promise you here, ain't nobody stopping and reloading Jack. <laughs> nah, that's right. Say, oh, well, that's a terrible thing. Really? We're going to introduce him to Jesus. Very <laughs> That's what it's all about, right? Very, very, <laughs> very quick. So I understand that at times you have to confront really bad behavior, but you can't hate anybody. We got to be quick to forgive everybody. We have to. It's not an option. You know, and every Sunday we pray, forgive us as we forgive those. I have to forgive the people who really horked me today. I know, I got to, I got to, I will let it go, I will let it go. Got to do it, we have, because I want God to forgive me. I can't walk away hanging on to stuff. And, I'm not going to let this go. No, I got to let it go. You know, when you get to heaven and God asks you, is there anybody that has really ticked you off that you're mad at? You better go, nope. <laughs> nope. What about this guy? He punched you in the face. Nope. What about this guy who lied to you and, and took $10,000 of your retirement money? What about, nope. Nope, got nothing to say about anybody. Let it go, Jack. Let it go. All right. So we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf and has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek! Who in the world is Melchizedek? Well, come back this fall and I will tell you. <laughs> let, us, let us pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your kindness and grace. You are the high priest that has sacrificed for all of our sins and God, you are very quick to forgive. Help us, Lord in our worst times, not to run from you and hide from you, even in our biggest sins, but to know that we can come and if we start coming to you, you will run. 
to us. And that was to be quick to forgive others, that we might also obtain this kind of quick forgiveness. Help us not to hold on to stuff uh, with people. We thank you that your saving grace is very powerful and you're always there for us. We love you. Ask special blessing on all those who've been listening. Uh, as we go into the summer, uh, people will be camping and, you know, shooting off fireworks and boating and ATVing and who knows what all they'll be doing. Lord, I pray for all our people at our church that you keep everybody safe. Protect everyone, that no one would suffer loss, we pray, particularly of health or of life in particular. Let your grace rest upon our congregation. And help us, Lord, as we stay fired up, keep coming to church on Sunday, but as we take these Wednesdays off, and then we can start up again this fall. We thank you for all your kindness. Special blessing on all those who've been hearing these teachings. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. See you in September.